podcast for the entrepreneurial, mindful and creative leader. I'm Jim Antonopoulos. I'm Damien Carolla. We're broadcasting from the beautiful George's Building in Collins Street, Melbourne. And this is Fearless. Yeah, I was blown away by um, Reg's interview. How good, how good. And just so in, in retrospect when you heard. Yeah, uh, I've listened to it now for a couple of times and, you know, to talk about authenticity as a leader is, you know, that's where it's at and humility um, and it starts in here, you know, yeah. it starts in your heart. Um, he, he demonstrated that. Yeah, wow. Um, it was it was amazing. I was, it was what a privilege to have him here with us. Yeah, it's pretty cool, wasn't it? It was. Um, how was your week? Uh, really interesting, Jim. I um, just sort of mentioning before, I had the opportunity to speak at a uh, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs Forum on Monday mm. night in front of a lot of sort of business owners and, and business leaders. And the nature of the topic was uh, entrepreneurial performance and sort of resilience and where people within a room uh, make the shift. And just really got to talk about some really cool topics, some really cool honest topics about fear, self-doubt and all the kind of bits and pieces that business owners and leaders and entrepreneurs typically go through uh, mm. throughout their career. So it was just really quite humbling to hear the, all of the common stories but, um, from people around their, their struggles and how they've come through to the other side and, and how some, a lot of that doubt and uncertainty mm. um, is something that sort of comes up on a fairly regular basis. So it's just a really cool, cool, honest uh, and authentic night, I guess. Amazing. Yeah. So you do a lot of work with entrepreneurs and you must see that a lot. You, you also must see the opposite of all of that quite a bit as well. Um, self-assuredness, arrogance. Yeah. You must see a lot of that. And you must do a lot of work in moving people from those that sense of fear to a sense of empowerment and fearlessness. Yeah, it's it's it really is the work, and it's actually not only the, the work for for me. It's actually the work for uh, I guess just pretty much all the entrepreneurs and business owners that we come in contact with. Once they start to move out of that, that kind of almost that egoic, fear based behaviour, and and it's not always just a the big alpha ego, it's, it's often sometimes that sort of inferior ego, which is the, I can't do this, I'm not good enough, worthwhile. And, and that sort of, that um, lack of self-worth is always coming up time and time again. I mean, without going into too, too many specifics, um, I, I can assure you that uh, that sort of in, sense of inferiority, um, regardless of uh, the people you're dealing with, uh, they're just patterns that come up on a, on a fairly regular basis. But when people start to make that shift out of those states, that's when true performance comes alive. When people start to walk through that doorway, it's just look. It's really one of the most fascinating topics that I've ever um, had the, I guess, um, you know, been lucky enough to explore and examine with a, a lot of really cool business owners and leaders. Mm. Imposter syndrome must be so common. Yeah, I, it's it's one of the most common uh, sources mm. of angst. How does that? Um manifest itself what does it look like when people are experiencing that that sense of um self-doubt and fear in their own capability um, and non-belief in themselves which is at the heart of imposter syndrome i imagine yeah it's it, it when you get, get to the core of it it's that lack of self-belief self-regard self-worth as well um people sort of wake up sometimes and, and think to themselves how did i find myself here 
and it's point of the business and and imposter syndrome is all about hey guess what something might happen i might get found out here and i might i i may not really be the person that everyone thinks i am and so what happens then and when you say uh, it, it sort of manifests in certain ways it manifests in the way people engage with their teams it manifests in terms of the way they'll cut a deal, do a presentation, put a pitch deck together, the way they negotiate. There's, it's almost like a gut feel. There's an intuitive sense that people are holding back on their potential. Why do you think people are fear the deal? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Why? It's, um, uh, just while you're thinking about it, I work a lot in um, – I've worked throughout my career in creative industry and creative people fear the deal. What, what do you think? Oh, it's – I think it's ingrained. It's yeah. taught to them yeah. to fear it. It's not. Dis- it's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Um, it's not discussed um, in, through their education. Um, so they're not the, equipped the, for it. No one's teaching them. For it. They're yeah. not teach. They're not taught. Um, and when they're faced with it, they think it's oh, it's not me. Yeah. So how do we expect people to go into these arenas with no education or no tools, and then we expect them to perform? Mm. It doesn't work, does it? No, not at all. And then there's also at the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are entrepreneurs who uh, fear the deal as well, and fear even looking at and diagnosing their own deal flow to improve it. Why do you think that exists? Hmm. I think um, I think part of it is cultural. I think we've been raised uh, to, to have that level of angst within business. There's not too many people that are raised and given the tools and techniques coming up through high school and you know primary school, even through university to actually understand how do I, how do I learn some techniques which manage my adrenaline in, under difficult situations and scenarios. And it's up to the individual to actually find it out for themselves. And mm. it's not until they've gone through and been kicked around in the marketplace that they've either got two choices. I'm either going to hide away and not go there again or I've got to kind of get up and, and go back again and again no matter how hard, how hard I get kicked. But it's not even enough to actually repeat those experiences in the arena. You've actually got to learn some techniques. You do. Yeah. Absolutely do. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of the Roosevelt quote that you mentioned in the arena. And I might just read it for our listeners. And can you... Help me diagnose it after I read Love it. to. So, quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error, and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. What a great quote. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. Yeah, what, what, is it, what does it feel like for you? It's inspiring. Yeah. It's, um, it says, you, you, a couple of weeks ago you mentioned that we have to go through the mud. That's a nice summary of this quote. We have to go through the mud. We have to experience um, setbacks. We have to be told that we're no good to improve. We have to see 
our own weaknesses to improve. And we also have to have experience. We have to strive valiantly through all that mud. Yeah. That's what it means to me, I think. Yeah. Do you actually, can you recall some of your early experiences in your life where you've had to sit in the mud and how oh. you might have got through it? Yeah, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can. And in my own business, you know, I've been in, in um, I, I grew up in the dot-com years. You know, my early career was formed through the dot-com years. I worked in what was then emerging technology, um, navigating the deal, the work, uh, the business through those years was an effort in itself uh, in a volatile market. Uh, and then the whole thing blew up, you know, the dot-com bubble burst. Absolutely. And we are in the mud. What was that like? Debilitating. Yeah, right. Imposter syndrome at large. Yes. You know, falling back into the market after that. You question yourself. You'd ask yourself, you'd say to yourself, Am I simply a product of a fluke that yes. happened a few years ago? Yes. Or did I actually come out of that and learn something? And I think those of us that kept going, a lot of people didn't yeah. continue to work in technology, but those of us that did um, dusted off and kept going. So, Jim, what does it actually take for you to have gone through that process and not quit? Because you know we can't judge people that jump out no. at that point because it's pretty brutal it is i mean you know you can't put food on the table um you don't know where your next dollar is going to come from and it's pretty easy to switch off and go work for the man mm. or the woman you know what's what's that like for you to um to sort of sit down and just grit through it i mean what does it actually take for for, for people to actually really really just sit down and grind it out a lack of fear of failure, a perseverance and determination. I think grit is a, is a, is a good word. Um, I think there's also some attributes that really define people who make that shift. Um, they're guided by values. They stick to them. They're set of beliefs. Um, Red referenced them last week. Um, the, the, the value of having, of aligning towards values. So if you don't have, um, if you don't have some core principles or some core values when the storms come, you're just going to get knocked around. You are, yeah. They're the guardrails on the freeway. Yeah, um, right. Um, they're driven by purpose, these people who make the shift. They're on purpose. They stick to their purpose and that pushes them forward, that moves them forward, even if it's only a small step. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. We did some research about 10 or 12 years ago at um, one of the psych... Um, uh, you know, one of the psych departments within a university and one of the key uh, findings that we, um, we came across is some of the literature reviews kind of told us that if you integrate highly stressful situations with your core purpose, you'll start to regulate the amount of um, cortisol or adrenaline you release. The brain has a funny way of, of you know, integrating those really difficult, hostile or... or um, incredibly challenging situations uh, against the core purpose, which allows you to um, just to calm yourself down a few yeah, points. Wow. And it's, 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 it's science. We oh, know that to be amazing. true. Mm. And, amazing. And, and it's, you know, to, to work, with, <clears throat> work with people that don't have a deep or embedded sense of purpose or a collective sense of purpose, you can feel, you can feel the team and you can feel that sort of lack of alignment. And it's not just a... A fancy conversation to have. This stuff's actually high performance. This mm. is how high-performing teams 
function and we we're privileged in our last podcast with Reg to see someone that plays the game at the, the biggest level to talk about these core values. Mm, I agree. Um, and I also think um, just going back to those attributes is authenticity, compassion and purpose are all linked quite closely. Uh, a strong sense of self-awareness is a key attribute um, that really binds authenticity um, a sort of compassionate nature, nature and a sense of purpose that really drives a, a person. Do you see that in the really successful entrepreneurs that you work with? I, I definitely do. Look, there are many ways to grow a company. You can grow one with uh, completely no regard for any of your employees, team, your stakeholders or the community within you within which you operate. I'm not saying you can't grow a business like that, but the people we predominantly work with uh, are ones that put a lot of compassion and authenticity into their brand, their pitch. The way they actually negotiate deals still has a lot of their integrity. And it's it's really where, as entrepreneurs, leaders and, and business people, that's actually where we find our potential. That's the, 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 I'll call it the brutal reality because people have to come to terms with the fact that if I'm not being myself, who am I being? And if I can't inject that personal integrity into every single decision, not just weekly, but moment by moment into all of my business dealings. And I'm not saying it's easy. It takes a lot of practice and self-discovery to do this. Um, the entrepreneurs that get through the other side, it is a complete game changer. You know, they've, they've, once they, they allow that compassion to, to really open themselves up, they have an open heart, but they're strongly metric-driven. Okay, they live in the real world. They live in the world of numbers and, and throughput and EBIT, but they're, they're completely open and, and willing to go to wherever they need to to, to mm. get those opportunities across the line. Can I ask you about the words open heart? I interview a lot of leaders in my work. I interviewed one this morning. And that word, those words come up a lot. I'd really like to know a bit more about the idea of an open heart. I hear that a lot in a lot of the leaders that I talk to and work with comes up a lot these two words open heart what's behind that what does it look like when someone has an open heart do they display certain attributes how does a, a leader CEO behave when they have an open heart I think um, it's you'll see when people are behaving in that way with an open heart it's less less about what they're saying and it's a lot more about how they turn up in a room you'll notice their compassion their patience they're completely present and they're engaged with other people within the room there's a um it's almost like they create a lot of space for really good dialogue they're not trying to talk over the top of people they the conversation isn't so much measured but it's it's quite real and authentic you'll notice that it's more about how people feel in a room. When you've got an open heart, it just feels like you're really open to pretty much any possibility. Uh, you're, you, you bring a lot of compassion into, into your conversation. You just take time. You listen. And probably the most important thing is you, you start to create a lot of space for, for a lot of presence and observation. You just notice it with uh, certain business leaders, the way they – it's, it's how they conduct themselves and it's a lot less to do with what they're actually saying. What's been your experience? You know, I've certainly worked with some um, many organisations where, you know, you, you see the default. You see good leaders, but you don't see great leaders, you know. 
these are good people who are good leaders doing a good job. But the great ones are the ones that, yeah, have an open heart. They're, they empathize. Their ability to have, show empathy is remarkable. You, you mentioned present presence and engagement. They're in the room and they make you feel like you're the most important person in the room because they, their complete attention is on you. They understand the before, during and after of the conversation they're having with you. Irrespective of how important they are, how senior they are, those great leaders, there's only a few that I can, you know, probably all of us can really reel off, um, just really display those attributes, that sense of presence and engagement in that moment um, and contextualise that moment greatly and have um, a level of authenticity but also empathy for the situation, for the conversation, even if it is a deal-making conversation, um, they display these really pure human attributes. Um, and I've seen the opposite of that more more often, which is unfortunate. So what's, what's the opposite look like? Oh, a sense of self-importance. Okay. You know, I've seen leaders walk into a room and strategically seat, seat themselves at a very specific part of the boardroom table to ensure that they are the centre of attention. Mm with the entire room looking at them, knowing what was being constructed. Right. Um, you know, other attributes, you know, a lack of empathy. Looking at your mobile phone, not being present. Mm. You see that more often than you do the positive yeah. attributes. And it's a bit of a shame because uh, we that's not where we find human potential. Mm. It's, a, it's quite the opposite. Um, you know, sometimes I have compassion for people when they're behaving like that well hopefully it's not sometimes i try and find a little bit of compassion because once you start to peel away the layers of the onion you really you start to understand that it's just driven by fear okay when you see someone with an alpha personality it's it's not that hard to pick it apart it's there's always fear driving that kind of behavior and and there's there's some of the people that we probably have to have the greatest amount of compassion for because inside uh, they're really struggling. They're, they're f- finding it incredibly hard to be themselves. And so what do you reckon it takes for someone to carry around that facade for years and years and years? What do you think it does to them? Oh, it it's wears away at them, doesn't it? It'll yeah. chip away at them. Well, it wears away at them and then it wears away the people around them and it sort of just magnifies. Uh, and, we, and you're right, we see it a lot in business and it's, it's actually quite sad because there's nothing um, – I get, there's nothing harder to, to do to someone within a team than to expect them not to be themselves. What do you think are the top, let's, let's pick a number five, top five sources of fear in entrepreneurs and leaders in the work that you've done? What are the things that you've found come up a lot? One of the ones that I've come across, and I've personally had this uh, back in the day and I had to work through it, was this need for validation. Validation is a really good one. Um, you're not born into this world looking for validation, are you? You don't come out as a baby saying, I need validation and approval. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's my validation? Well, yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Depends how you look at it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's we kind of we learn it in our society. We learn it in those people around us. It's just not that they're wrong. It's just what they've learned. And, and often we pass it on to other people. So this need for approval or validation to say something outside of me is going to make me feel good inside, which is just, you know, it's, it's, it's the craziest thing you can think of. There's actually nothing outside of you that's going to fix anything that's inside yeah, of you. Yeah, that's true. And you can see it when people are defined by their career or defined by their role. Yeah. 
you know, the title defined by the job title. Um, one of the things I removed from my business uh, quite a long time ago, actually, were um, was the naming system of junior, senior, midweight, sort of uh, executive, a naming system that uh, essentially alluded to a hierarchy or a leveling up. I removed any any all of that actually from our business to have a more equal playing field, but also to remove that sense of self-importance, Yes, uh, that sense of uh, superiority that some people have with a uh, job title. I think that's a sense of um, external factor contributing to and validating you, isn't it? Yeah, it's great, Jim. I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It, not only is it archaic, it's got nothing to do with high performance. As soon as you... I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with having a specific job title for no. pragmatic reasons, but you, you're very smart to remove that because as soon as you, you get these grandiose job titles, what, what do you think um, starts to pop up? This thing called ego, yeah, and, and people start getting attached to those titles. So rather than being completely uh, present about uh, a business problem or a solution or how to actually move beyond uh a certain challenge within a, an organisational context, people keep defaulting th- through to these titles. So they'll either put people on pedestals, which doesn't help anyone, or they'll look down at t- down at people. So either either mechanism is of, of completely no value to the business. No, not at all. I get how it works in the military. I get it. Yeah. But my business isn't the military. No. You know, and the world of um, business it. I think has progressed beyond those uh, linear structures. Yeah, that's that's um, you are correct, and, and it is certainly necessary in various settings. Absolutely, in terms of how you retain uh, structure and control within a military environment. But when it comes to the way we operate, uh, I'd hope there are a lot of people that are doing what you're doing, which is challenging this need to let's let's get way beyond this sort of title stuff. I mean, why is it so? meaningful for people and we've got to start playing a bigger game and that bigger game is that um i, I don't have to look up or down to uh, to anyone and that's where true innovation creativity comes from that's where the, the the really big problems get solved yeah i agree and you're empowering um large groups of people to embrace innovation embrace um ideating and prototyping ideas and moving and solving um, rather than focusing in on their hierarchical structures and their own sense of uh, seeking validation for them. Yeah, and, and it's the other thing about validation and titles and, and structures and et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was mentioned before we had the opportunity to talk to a number of entrepreneurs on Monday night and things like titles and, and facades and veneers just keep people completely out of contact with one another. They're quite separate and we can't solve the biggest problems on our own. Any way we can solve the big problems in organisations and uh, across the ventures that we work with is in a complete collective mindset. And so as soon as you've got a title or, or a facade, a veneer, a power suit, you know, these, those shiny new cufflings, you know, I'm, like I love a good suit and all the rest, don't get me wrong, but um, I, Jim, I, I used to be that guy back in the day that would hide behind those corporate suits, those titles and those facades and veneers and you just realise that it's, it's, just a, it's just a load of bullshit to be honest. Oh, <laughs> I course. can't be any more straight about it's it. It's a mask, isn't it? it, and, it and it keeps us separate uh, when we've been with high-performing teams. It's when they completely drop into connectivity, they're aligned, 
they don't have to say anything. Problems arise and they actually know what roles they need to uh, crystallise in order to get them over the line. Mm. And that's that's the essence of high performance, isn't it? It is. It is. I'm actually working with an organisation at the moment. There are 140 people and uh, the remit for the work that I'm doing is to create a culture of innovation where you know s- uh, small groups of 10 to 15 in, within that um, can go from identifying a, a problem to delivering a solution um, all within a time box period. But the biggest change they're seeking is uh, a mindset change in organisation-wide around high performance, innovation, design thinking, and moving products from identifying problems to launching product. Um, what tools and techniques do you think would work in that context? 150, roughly 150 people business. You know, uh, back in the day, we embarked on some fairly uh, ambitious organisational change projects at probably state government level and, and uh, federal level. and. Early on, most of them did fail. And the reason they failed is because we invested a lot of time and effort into strategy and structure and process. And there was nowhere near enough time invested into working with the individuals within these teams and just getting them to understand this conversation around authenticity before we even embark on a a high level uh, transformation project. If, If they're ever successful, you always start with at the individual level, you know, who am I? Um, how do I drop my guard? And it normally starts with the leaders within the organisation that give permission for others to drop their guard. They actually have to start getting pretty vulnerable. I know you, I remember you've told me this a few times about good leaders that can actually show their vulnerability to others and how you actually give everyone else around you permission to drop their guard. I don't actually think there's any other way other than getting the, the leadership to show not just compassion, but some real vulnerability. You know, these are my mistakes. This is what I've, uh, this is what I'm struggling with. Because if you want to get people to be real and to drop their guard and come together, we need to know that your pain is also my pain, and and we're not just paying this this big facade. I've got it all together game, which we we know is the biggest load of bullshit on the on the face of the planet. Completely agree. So what and what do you think, Jim? What do you think are some of the some of the ways that we we get people to use the word drop their guard, but just to be a bit more real with one another within a team? Um, I think identifying um, how a team chooses to work together is really clear, is really important right at the outset to develop clarity. Uh, What that might look like is, you know, 10 people cross-functional might come together. I think the first bit of work is actually to sit down and answer the question, how are we going to work together? Yeah. What are our strengths and weaknesses? Um, How do I like to receive feedback? Um, and when when do I actually go into a state of fear uh, when I'm receiving feedback? What type of feedback doesn't work with me? Um, being really clear and open right at the outset around how you can get the best out of me and vice versa within a team, that openness, and then setting up some guiding principles for the team to agree on a working a way of working together, a construct and a contract hours, rhythms, rituals, feedback mechanisms, um, acknowledgement of how each individual within that team works best because we all work in different ways. Not all of our hearts are going to be open at the same time. No. You know, and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, not all of us are going to reach 
high performance at the same time. Some may not reach A player status. They might get to B and that's okay. We have to understand how we get the best out of them. And I think the first bit of work, you know, in an innovation team, which is my end of this table, <laughs> I think that we have to establish clarity, not um, around our job roles and functions, and how we work best as individuals, as humans, um, because we're, it, otherwise it defeats the purpose of the word team. So, so from what it sounds, uh, where it often goes wrong is you're trying to get people to do stuff that they just really don't want to do. It's not their natural way of engaging. Exactly. exactly. So why, why would we expect someone to reach their potential when they're pushing up against who they are? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense, does yes, it? Yes, that's true. Or when a team begins uh, just with assumptions. Yeah. You, know, you and I, let's say you and I are the team, we just begin working on something and assuming that we're going to work in a particular way. Yeah. Now, we've already failed. Yes. The horse has bolted and we're already down the path of failing because we haven't actually stopped and said, hold on a sec, how are we going to work together? How do I get the best out of you? I don't know. You tell me. What kind of feedback do you – how do you like to receive feedback? Written, verbal? Um, what feedback – what type of feedback mechanisms actually frighten you? Uh, what scenarios do you work best in? What environments do you work best in? Um, what else? What about the other things outside of this project that we're working together? Your your family, your peers, what else is going on? Lay it all on the table. Only then I think a team can actually work to its highest capability, its highest performance level because then we have empathy for one another. We had a really great cracking podcast with Reg uh, the other week and it was just amazing how he took that you've got to really care about other people you've you've almost got to give a shit about the people around you and you can't fake that stuff so people know that when you know that leaders care for you or, or you care for your colleagues and peers there's there's almost a, a level of trust where people aren't afraid to open up and you can't fake that can you you can't fake that i care for you you either get that you that i care for you or i don't and and when i i, I see when leaders behave uh, without a level of compassion or empathy towards others, they can actually ask and demand a lot from the people around them. They can actually, um, you know, expect them to go to a completely different level. They can drive them very hard, but if there's that lack of care and empathy, um, people just don't want to work for people that they don't either uh, respect or think that they um, have got their back. That's that's the reality, isn't it, as human beings? Yeah, completely agree. Uh, one principle that I've adopted, it's um, I think I mentioned a book I read um, a couple of episodes ago called Rework by Jason Freed. He's the CEO of Basecamp. Um, yeah, tell me about that. One of those, it's one of those books that just have really inspired the way I run my business. But one of the principles that I actually got from that book, so credit to Jason, was um, we're not family. This team today, we're not family. So let's not pretend yep. to be family. But what we are are a series of connected human beings who have families and we need to understand that. But we are not a family. A family yep. is a different dynamic. Yes. Yeah, family is a completely different dynamic. And there's a lot of um, organizational leaders who use the word family and we are family together in an organizational construct. And that's wrong because yeah. it breeds a different type of uh, dynamic yeah. in an organization. Uh, and for me, I think we, I'm very passionate about removing that construct because that doesn't mean we don't, we don't have each other's backs. It doesn't mean that we don't 
respect each other and professionally love one another, you know, but the, the idea of us using those words creates a dynamic that just doesn't work with me. And I, I adopted it from that book and it meant a lot to me because I understood the principle of us being connected families, connected people who have other things going on in their lives. Um, that to me is far more important than creating a, a false sense of uh, family in an organisational con context. It's, a, re it's a, a really good observation. We often hear those words thrown around a lot and um, they're kind of like mission statements and motherhood statements. Um, people start to get a bit cynical because if you use the word we're family and then you behave in a way that is contrary to that, you're going to lose people really quickly, aren't you? And that's often what happens. People get lost and say, um, yeah, no, don't, don't, don't tell me we're family because it's, I saw the way you behaved last week. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, exactly. Jim, since we're on the topic of people that we've been around that have made that shift and let's let's just call it a shift out of a lack of authenticity or, or, or lack of clarity and purpose into a values-centred, purposeful uh, way of operating in the world. Uh, since we're on that conversation, um, when, when do you reckon that shift first started for you? When did you sort of first notice that shift? I think I've gone through a number of shifts in my career. Um, I think one of the most recent ones is um, in my business here at Tank. Um, you know, five or six years ago, well, I joined Tank in 2007. Uh, my background was in technology, emerging technology and internet. Um, I joined Tank as a small team of four people and we grew to just over 25 people at one point. And I realized there was a point one day where I arrived at work and I didn't want to walk in. Wow. I just, didn't want, like? I just didn't want to walk in the building. What, 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 what was, was that horrible. about? It was frightening. I just froze across the road. Um, it was raining, I remember, just drizzling. Um, so I walked to the beach. And I just didn't want to walk in. I was, um, wasn't proud of the work I was doing. I wasn't inspired by the people that surrounded me. They were good people. But I just wasn't inspired by it. Um, it didn't mean much to me. Uh, it was a toxic environment, personally. Um, I just didn't believe in it. Uh, we were doing everything for everyone. We were saying, trying to say yes as often as we could. Uh, I believe we need to be able to say no just yeah. as often. Yeah. Uh, we didn't stand for anything. So I walked to the beach in this drizzly day and I sat there and, and I wrote down not my business goals, I wrote down just what I wanted out of my own life. Right? And I think the shift began. And the things that I wrote down, and I'm happy to share them with you, uh, a few of the things that I wrote down were that I wanted to see my children more. I wasn't a present father. I was, my mind was always wandering. Um, I wanted to be able to take them to school more often. I wanted to be able to uh, arrive home at an hour where I could actually then go for a walk with them. Yes. You know, we live in, a, in the same neighbourhood and you know, walk down the road and maybe even buzz a friend and say, hey, do you want to have a drink at the pub at five o'clock? Yeah. You know, normal hours. Yes. Um, and I just described that in my journal. It's a very personal moment. Um, and I described lots of things about my relationship and uh, my friends, uh, the circle of people that surrounded me. And the type of work I wanted to do really only took one line. Um, so I worked. I walked back into the business that day and I wrote the words, 
I wrote that last line on the wall. I wrote meaningful work on the wall. And the people in my business started at that time looked at those words and were frightened by them. What, what, was, uh, what was hard for them to sort of grapple They didn't know that? what they meant. Yeah. They didn't know what it meant. And it meant change. That's what it meant. It meant that one of the other things that I wrote down was I wanted to work in a small team, not a family. Yes. A small, high-performing team of leaders without hierarchy. I say to, I say to the, the team now that I might own the business, but I'm not the boss. Yes. You're the boss. Yes. I say that often. Um, and people were frightened by those words, meaningful work. So I started describing what meaningful work looked like for me and I asked them what it meant for them. And it took it was a process of probably five or six years of wholesale change from the ground up. Uh, business partners moved on. Uh, a lot of staff were moved on. Um, changed buildings twice. Um, got B Corp accreditation, which is a really strong signal for me uh, that my business was a, for a business for, that was a force for good. Um, and we've uh, acknowledged um, B Corp accreditation twice now. And we're, I think we're in our fourth year of, as a B Corp. Uh, we've moved into a B Corp building here in Collins Street in Melbourne. One of the things on my list was to work in a dynamic CBD environment surrounded by entrepreneurs. Here I am today. Um, that for me was one of the largest shifts um, of recent times. Jim, I've, I've witnessed that shift and I've witnessed just how hard um, you've stood your ground regardless of what the market forces um, have told yeah. you. And people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote an article, I think I mentioned it a few episodes ago, called I'm the Arsehole and that's okay. I wrote an article about it and one of the things that a lot of the things actually that have resonated in our few discussions that we've had with um, leaders and, and people like Reg Crawford last week um, uh, that you know leaders stand by their values and sometimes sometimes you have to make decisions that are difficult for someone um, that sometimes uh, creates a pivot point in their career but if they if you that decision is a aligned to your values and your own sense of purpose and it's authentic, you have to make that decision and it'll be okay. Yeah, and you, you will get through the other side. It Absolutely. certainly won't be without its bumps, scratches and grazes, but yeah. you, you actually will get through the other side. Absolutely. And for me, it was a process of five or six years where, you know, climbing through the mud, as you say, really just trudging through the mud. And I'm grateful for it. Because it teaches you so much. It teaches you so much about yourself, not others, about yourself. Do you think there's any other way to learn other than to go through that process? I'm talking big learning. I'm not just talking sort of little stuff. Is, it, is this really the only way that we learn? I think so. I think, you know, I think learning is, um, learning can happen in lots of, many, in, in lots of ways. Um, I think that's a key way of learning and experiencing um, growth in self, uh, but I think at the same time, not at, while you're going through the mud, you also need to make um, incremental and iterative change and also um, adopt and read and absorb and ask from others at, while you're going through it. Otherwise, you're hoping that this one thing will change, 
you have to iterate, you have to evolve and grow and absorb and read and try things and fail along the way. In the process of five or six years, I've, I've tried so many different models of teams of people working together that have failed and I've arrived at a really good one that's working for the moment. It's working for the last couple of years really well. But I tried so many things while I was through the, while I was going through the mud. I wasn't just going through the mud. I was trying and failing and then trying something else. But I was moving purposefully forward. That's what I was doing. It's uh, when we observe uh, leaders and people in high-performing um, situations, high-performing teams, uh, etc., um, elite athletes and, and all of the people that we've come across, this process is always messy. There's a, a funny assumption around growth and, and how we grow and evolve and it's often people don't realise that they actually think it's going to be linear, that you're going to go from point A to point no. B to point C. And, and I, I love the way that you've explained the messiness and the ordinariness of that process. Oh, so messy. So messy. Ambiguous is the word. Tell me about one of your shifts. Oh, gee, like, like you, Jim, I've had a series of shifts. I remember, I recall one pivotal moment. I think I was about the age of 29, 30, and I was about to buy a house, uh, actually not a house, a two-bedroom apartment. And I had a, you know, maybe let's say I had 100 grand in the bank account and I could have secured that property, but I, it was a bit of a tipping point. I could either start my consulting business or I could buy the house. I couldn't buy the house and consult, uh, commence a consulting business from scratch because I couldn't fund that mortgage. So I decided not to buy the place and I decided to um, no longer work for the for the man and I decided to go out on my own. And I can tell you that in that first year I ran out of money really quickly. Uh, absolutely uh, frightening. You, all these things start going through your mind. You think to yourself... I can't do this. This is ridiculous. Who thought this was a good idea? I just go back and, you know, get into a corporate role and pay that mortgage off. And there's nothing wrong with the, uh, people that want to do that. I mean, I can only speak for myself. Uh, but I, I recall at that time thinking to myself, this is a really painful, difficult experience. I can't do this. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. And I, but there was something within me that just kept on driving me forward and said, look, I've just got to get another opportunity. I've got to make another contact. I used to force myself to make calls through the morning uh, regardless of how I felt. And I said, if I can just get two or three meetings and do a, uh, put a few slide decks out, I reckon I'll get closer. And for the first probably two years was uh, created a lot of anxiety and stress, just pushing through. Uh, despite what everyone around you was telling you, it wasn't actually what they were saying, it was what they were thinking, saying, geez, who thought this was a good idea, mate? You should just go back to a big corporate hierarchy. And But I, I think the, the one thing I, I learnt, and, and I don't believe that we can really learn meaningful work unless we've gone into that outer edge and we've gone through those challenges and, and trials. I know we use those words a lot as a as a cliche, but how we actually start to get uncomfortable, how we get more comfortable with those really uncomfortable situations or settings really is the work of high performance. It's how do we, how do we get okay with being uncomfortable? How do we get okay with this internal angst and, and resistance when we're embarking on a new journey? I'm not saying it's going to feel great, but just learning how to relax and be a little bit more calm around those situations. Then the next question I always ask people is, how do we then start actively seeking opportunities 
that make us feel uncomfortable. That's really the work of high performance. So we're starting to prepare, train and plan for those moments and opportunities, whether it's a, a new skill, whether it's going up to someone quite significant within a business, you know, whatever the, the context is, is irrelevant. We can only decide for ourselves what's going to push us towards our outer limit. And then once we're at that outer limit, how do we actually say, hey, I've probably got to relax now because this is the perfect place to be. Whether it's starting a new business, whether it's changing your business, I love the fact that uh, you're quite willing to accept that some days you get up and you don't know which, which way is up and you don't know how you're going to get through the next quarter. But there's something within you, there's like a, almost an internal spirit saying, just keep going. Don't stop, don't get off the horse, just keep going. Yeah. I think it's a, when people start to realise and you've witnessed it and you've actually been part of a journey with a team where you've just seen them do a fundamental shift, they've done something that's just so out of the ballpark, it's always been open heart, open mind, open will. They start to drop all of these bricks and barriers and blockers and they just start to trust each other and they, there's like a, an unsaid trust between a team and you're completely right if you can if people can start to recruit for those types of attitudes values and behaviors and it does come from the leaders within the organization but not everyone wants to go there not everyone wants to be that open and it really this thing called the shift uh, is something we've been examining for quite some time and it's really how do we shift from cl being closed-minded to open-hearted and open-minded? How do we start to let go of those bricks called I'm not good enough, worthy or worthwhile in order for us to go forward? I've done a lot of work with lots of entrepreneurs and I can literally tell you that when they've walked out of programs, coaching sessions or workshops, they start to look differently. You know, they've dropped not necessarily all of the bricks, but they're starting to drop some of those uh, belief systems from the past that they just know don't serve them anymore. So I've got a quote, Damien. Um, one of my favourite authors, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I've been reading him all my life. And the quote goes, I want to stand as close to the edge as I can without going over. Because out on the edge you see all the kinds of things you can't see from the center. For me, that's immensely powerful. And if there was one statement that would sum up my career and my career growth and the various career trajectories that I've taken, it's that. Now, I wanted to ask you a question that's probably linked to this quote, but we've talked about making a shift from a state of fear to a state of fearlessness. And this kind of shift that entrepreneurs make and that unlocks their potential and capability. Entrepreneurs from all sorts of industries, mind you. Um, we're gonna end this podcast soon, uh, this episode soon. What's one thing that an entrepreneur can do tonight to begin a shift in their career? What's the first thing they should do? Really, really, uh, really insightful question, Jim, and it's directly linked to that uh, quote about the outer edge. So this thing called the outer edge is something that it's really important for everyone to get their head around. And when I talk about the outer edge, it's, it's coming, into a, coming into a place where you can find those areas that cause you discomfort and angst. So you start to actively seek opportunities to practice 
what we call um, almost discomfort resilience. Uh, it's finding any opportunity within your day, within your week, uh, even learning patience with, with within difficult situations, anything that sort of provokes or causes a little bit of internal angst or resistance is the perfect place for us to start. So it's learning how to we become a bit more comfortable with being uncomfortable and being in uncomfortable, difficult situations. We find those situations. And you know what we do, Jim? We start to relax and we expand. As every time we relax, we expand a bit more. And so you can imagine the things that you were doing uh, five or ten years ago are vastly different to what you've been what you're doing now. Yeah. And that's called expansion and we're actively looking for situations which they don't have to be massive, game-changing, uncomfortable situations, but we're just looking for daily opportunities to practice being uncomfortable, whether it's in a talk, whether it's going up and engaging with someone that we didn't normally go up to, whether it's um, dropping your guard a little bit more from time to time. Anything that's causing a little bit of angst or discomfort is that uh, edge that Kurt talks about. Yeah. And as soon as we relax into it, we expand. Yeah. I always, um, that moment I described, you know, walking to the beach and sitting down and writing down what I wanted out of my career and my actually my life, um, I hadn't done that before. It was immensely uncomfortable for me to do that. But I knew I didn't want to work, walk into work, work that morning. Right. Um, and I knew that I had to sit down and just do this. And it was immensely uncomfortable. Right. I didn't enjoy it. Yes. But I had to do it. Yeah, that's, that's right. Pen to paper. And I had to, I asked myself, Jim, I said to myself, Jim, stop the bullshit. Stop complaining. What do you actually want here? Yeah, wow. And I had to, I sat down and just wrote stuff down. Um, and it was immensely uncomfortable. And I completely agree with you. We have to find, even outside of, look, quote unquote, work, outside of our careers, things that we do in our lives that make us uncomfortable that are constantly varied, not just the same thing repeated over time, it has to be constantly varied, that constantly challenge us and move us and shift us um, around and around, not reading the same types of literature all the time, not doing the same types of exercise all the time, constantly moving and shifting and trying new things is at the heart of opening up and better understanding ourselves and our own capability and removing fear I think for me that's a re that's a really important first step. Yeah, I th look, I honestly think it's probably the I won't say, well, it's close to, for, to me. For, uh, it's really close to as the only step mm. if you want to um, increase your performance. Yeah. Well, Brilliant. thanks so much for today's discussion. No, thank I think, you. Um, we're getting used to this podcast thing. I kind of like it. Yeah, we're, we're slowly getting a bit more flow, aren't we? I think so. Yeah. Um, We'll tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll come back, do the next one. Fantastic. I'll talk to you then. Terrific. Thanks, Jim. Fearless is produced by Jim Antonopoulos and Damien Carolla. We broadcast from the George's Building in Collins Street, Melbourne. Your questions, your insights and your ideas will help us feed future episodes. <laughs>